Well, really good to see each of you here this morning. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, we're continuing our series as this journey to the cross as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 14 this morning. We just got done singing about the deep love of Jesus. I think every Christian would acknowledge and say, yes, Jesus loves me. I would say most people would acknowledge that Jesus demonstrates love, but God wants us to go beyond just an understanding intellectually of his love. What God is seeking to accomplish is that every single person would know the depth of his love, that we would know it experientially, that we would know the power of his presence and his love for us in such a way that it brings freedom to our lives, gravitas, integrity, strength. And the only way that that's ever going to happen is if we come face to face with the reality of just how much Christ loves us. And that's exactly what Jesus is accomplishing here. As we come to the Gospel of Mark, beginning in Mark chapter 14, verse 43, we are going to come to a series of scenes that show us firsthand the depth of love that Christ has for us. And he does so against the backdrop of various scenes and people We watch these exchanges, and they're almost like hard to imagine that they actually even took place, and yet they did, not only to accomplish God's plan of redemption, but to also reveal just how much Christ loves his own. And so just to kind of give you a little context, if you're new with us, as we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark, we are on the night in which Jesus is going to be apprehended. Jesus just got done having the final Passover in which he transformed the bread and the wine to the elements of the very first communion. And from there, then they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which means oil press in Aramaic. It's here that Jesus instructed his men to pray. He took three of them with him. He went a little further past them, and he poured out his soul. Three different times he checked in with the guys. They were always asleep. But Jesus, praying with earnest, and before they did fall asleep, Some witnessed and watched him praying in earnest, asking if there would be any other way for redemption to be accomplished apart from him facing the just immense pain of the cross and the reality of being separated in fellowship with the eternal Father, which he has never had. And yet Jesus made these famous statement words, Lord, not what I will, but what you will. Verse 36 in chapter 14. And then just as Jesus said, he was going to be betrayed, we pick it up beginning in verse 43, and we're going to see the deception by Jesus' companion. And this is all presented to us as a backdrop so that we will see the depth of love that Christ has for his people. So take a look, verse 43. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Jesus has told these guys, get up, the time of sleeping is done. He says, the one who is going to betray me is at hand. And while he's still speaking, Judas. And notice how he's referred to as one of the twelve. All the gospel accounts always refer to Judas as one of the twelve. This was one of Jesus' trusted friends, the treasurer, 
a key disciple, or at least it seemed. And notice that he is coming to the garden, and he's leading this entourage of a crowd accompanied with swords and clubs and chief priests and scribes and elders. Judas would know exactly where Jesus would be because Jesus frequently went to Gethsemane. We see this in John 18, verse 3, where it says that Jesus often went there with his disciples. This would be a place where they could get away from the crowds, where Jesus could do teaching and instruction, where they could rest and where they could pray. Judas, knowing this because of the frequency, knew exactly where to find Jesus. He's about a 30-minute walk from Jerusalem. But when when Judas shows up to apprehend Jesus, notice how the text refers to it. He came accompanied by a crowd. A great multitude. John 18, verse 3, tells us that this is a Roman cohort. So a legion had 6,000 Roman soldiers. A cohort was one-tenth of that. And so when Judas is coming, he's coming with about 600 soldiers, not to mention the temple police and the chief priests, the scribes, their entourage, and their own security detail that they would have. This would be like an immense force. We have no idea what they told the governing authorities to be able to get such a large contingency of soldiers. But it must have been along the lines that this Jesus is dangerous. He's a traitor. He's an insurrectionist. And he's about to lead a rebellion. And there is one thing that the Jews would not, that Romans would not stand for from the Jews and that would be an insurrection, a people rallying around some idea of a Messiah. And so here's this massive force. They come, swords, clubs, torches, and they're making their way, and Judas is at the head. Now, Judas, he had arranged for them to have a signal. Now, at Passover, you were going to have always a full moon which means that it would be about as as light as it could be in the midst of total darkness. But when you're in an olive grove and you've got all of these people and it's still very dark, it would be easy to not be able to quickly identify which one is Jesus. And so Judas said, listen, I'm going to give you a signal. Follow my signal. And he actually tells him what that's going to be. Now, Judas did this not only because it would be dark and he wanted to make sure that they apprehended Jesus, but he also did this because you remember that Judas was there on that final Passover when the various disciples spoke of the reality like, hey, listen, Jesus, you're saying that someone's going to betray you? It's not going to be any of us. We're willing to fight. We're even willing to die for you. And so Judas is thinking, you know what? One of these guys... He may actually have the guts enough to stand in Jesus' place and to feign that he indeed is Jesus so that Jesus could escape. And so that that would never happen, Judas arranges a signal. And it is the most despicable way to identify the Messiah. Look at this, verse 44. Now, he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, watch this, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away 
under guard. Jesus had taken the great act of respect and adoration. And that was used and was commonly used um, in the Middle East. And there would be a variety of different ways that you could show this type of greeting. You could kiss one's hand, their palm. Um, You could kiss the hem of their garment. But Judas picks the most intimate expression of greeting, and that is to kiss someone on the cheek. You would only do this in a very close, intimate relationship. And so when Judas comes, and here is this huge contingency of soldiers, swords, they got their sticks out, they're they're ready for an insurrection, and they're going to take it on. Judas says, watch me and my signal. And the signal is this, I will come up and I'm going to kiss Jesus on the cheek. And he says, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. You ever heard of the phrase, the kiss of death? You ever heard of that? This is where it comes from. It is to have a sign of intimacy that actually leads to someone's destruction. And for you and I to understand the mindset of Judas, there's an important detail that Mark records here that oftentimes is completely overlooked. He says, whoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. This literally means lead him away safely, securely, reliably. It's as if Judas anticipated that Jesus was going to be taken into protective custody. And you see this in the psyche of those who do significant acts of betrayal. They so twist it and work it through in their mind that even though what they're doing is absolute evil and betrayal, they actually start beginning to think that what they're doing is something that is good, something that is beneficial that it will be beneficial for the greater good. And that's what's happening with Judas. He gives them the statement and lead him away under guard, safely, securely. And you find this with people, false teachers, and those who deal in treachery and treason. They actually think they're doing what is right, when in fact, it is evil. And so here it is, verse 45. And after coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. Rabbi means teacher. It was a sign of honor and respect. It's very interesting in all the gospel accounts, we never have an account where Jesus is called Lord by Judas. Always, like in this case, like Rabbi. And what you have here with that kiss. When he kissed him, the treasure became the traitor, and he followed through with the act. It's interesting, Matthew, who records this scene, in Matthew chapter 26, he records that Jesus calls Judas friend. Can't you see the love that Jesus has for his companion, for Judas? He calls him friend, while he's being betrayed by Judas. I want you to let that really settle in. What would it be like if you 
were betrayed to death by a very close friend of yours who just completely flipped and turned on you or even perhaps one of your own kids whom you have poured out love and have all these shared experiences who you sacrificed for, who you've gone to great lengths to provide for. You've given them everything you have and yet they turn on you and turn you over to death. That's what we have here. And so he comes and he kisses him and look at verse 46. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, it's, we, we know this from Luke's account as well as John's that this is Peter. Now, we know that Luke tells us that two of Jesus' disciples had swords. Now, these aren't these battle swords, real long ones. These are more like daggers. They're, they're a blade. On, they're sharp on both sides. You wore it, put it in a leather sheath. It was rather common that you would carry one because these knives, uh, these daggers, had multiple uses. They were not generally used for hurting people. They were just used in everyday life in which you might need a knife, just like people sometimes carry a knife with them. This was regular. This was, this was not something that would be unaccustomed. But in this situation, though, with this intense scene, this large contingency of soldiers, here you have Peter, and Peter's thinking, you know, I've, man, I have failed Jesus. Jesus has told me that I'm going to betray him. Uh, I, he asked me to pray three different times. For some reason, I kept falling asleep, but I'm not going to let Jesus down now. And standing there, Jesus being seized, guess what happens? Peter grabs his knife. He pulls it out of that sheath, and he goes after, we learn, uh, that he goes after the chief priest's slave, this high priest. He goes perhaps for his head. He ends up cutting off his ear. Can't you see the impulsiveness of this? Peter's like one of those guys that's ready, fire, aim kind of guy. You know what I'm saying? Not thinking. It's just visceral, impulsive. Pulls it out. And he goes for a head. Perhaps sl- slave moves this way. Off comes his ear. And everything's taken on. I want you to know, things got extremely tense. Swords that weren't drawn, all of them were drawn. Everybody's ready to fight. The insurrection is on. But we learn from Dr. Luke in his gospel account that Jesus then heals this high priest's slave's ear. He takes his hand and he heals Malchus. And it's really a very good thing that Jesus did that because had Jesus not healed the high priest's slave's ear, there likely would have been four crosses the next day. Because the one thing that the Romans would never, ever settle for was any form of insurrection. And yet, now this, they witness a miracle. And Peter's standing there. And so, look at, they've come, they've come out with all of their clubs and their swords. Judas has kissed him. And Peter cuts off his ear. And then, look at verse 48. And then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? as you would against a robber? Have you come out with all, this, all these soldiers, all these swords, 
Have you come out with this great contingency of fighting men to arrest me as if I'm a robber? And that word could be translated like a guerrilla, a a terrorist, someone who is leading an insurrection and robs other people to fund what he's doing. Do you think that's who I am? Is that why you're putting out this great scene? And have you come this way? And like he says in verse 49, he says, listen, just to show you just how absurd all this is, verse 49, every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. And they're like, he's just pointing out the reality. And that was the case. Every day in front of everyone on the temple, the most by far popular place in Jerusalem at the Passover the whole week, I've been there teaching. Did you seize me? No, you did not. Why are you here now? Look what Jesus said. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. This is a fulfillment of God's plan. Your tremendous acts of evil and cowardice are all just a fulfillment of what God has written in his word. And before we leave Judas, when you consider Judas, remember this, just being around God's people and godly people does not make you godly or one of his. Judas was in the know. He was in the group. He was one of the 12, right? Judas had every advantage. In fact, he had a position of privilege and esteem. He was the treasurer. But friends, it's kind of like this. You can go to a really nice restaurant, and they can put before you an amazing spread of food. And you're hungry, real hungry, and you see all that's in front of you. But if you don't eat, you starve. And the same is true when you could hear the gospel, you could have the word presented to you, you can see Jesus in his fullness, but if you do not partake with what Jesus is offering you, your soul starves to death. You fail to respond to what God is offering you. And that's what we see with Judas. And if you want to see the depth of Christ's love, why just look at it against the backdrop of the deception of Jesus' companion, Judas. But there's something else that you need to see. If you really want to understand how much does Jesus really love you, well, look at the scene of the desertion by Jesus' disciples. And look at verse 50. When this happened, they all left him and fled. You see that? When this happened, Jesus is apprehended. He makes these statements. They run. Some of the disciples, they don't even look back. They are just hightailing it out of there, including Judas. Some of them run away, but they keep like lurking in the shadows. They, they, they want to see what is going to happen. This is a situation they had never been in because every single time that Jesus had been face-to-face with those who wanted to either treat him harmfully or kill him, Jesus always had a way of getting out. When he was trying to be, when they tried to pin him with their questions, Jesus always had the wisdom to fully turn the tables on him. There were occasions where Jesus even miraculously just walks away from those who would want to kill him. But this is all different. Now they've got Jesus. 
They are completely fixed on what they are seeing. They are firmly focused on the circumstances. They have forgotten all about the past experiences, what Jesus had to say about his sovereignty, displays of power. They're like, no, and it is, their world is coming completely unraveled and they run. And they're doing exactly what Jesus said would happen. Remember in 14, verse 27, remember he said, listen, the shepherd is going to be struck down and the sheep, you guys, you're going to scatter. And that's exactly what takes place. And then in verses 51 and 52, not only do you see the disciples scattering, but there is one of the most unusual, curious notes that is recorded in Scripture that is found right here. Look at that, verse 51. It's only here in Mark. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. And you're like, what? Why would that be recorded? Who shows up in a bed sheet? Okay, did you, right? Did you just, who runs around in a bed sheet? Certainly he wasn't a part of this group, at least originally, that's coming to apprehend Jesus. Um, It looks like uh, maybe he was sleeping like, whoa, you see all of these soldiers moving, you know, perhaps like one, two or so in the morning. You're awakened. I mean, like, there would be a major ruckus as they make their way through Jerusalem, through the streets, as they're going to go to apprehend Jesus. And so this young man is wearing nothing but a bedsheet. Obviously, he wasn't dressed for the occasion. And notice then they seize him, they grab his garment, but he's able to pull away and he runs away naked. Now, who in the world is this? Why would this even be here? Now, some suggest that this is John Mark, the very same one who God uses to write this gospel account. And I'm of the persuasion that that probably is what is actually taking place. We do know that John Mark's mother, Mary, was one of the benefactors of Jesus, meaning that she used her finances to help support his ministry. We know that John Mark's home that he came from was very instrumental in the very early church. And it is possible and this would be recognized by first century Christians, that this was a cameo appearance of the human author of this book. It's kind of like, you see like a masterpiece painting and you're taking it all in and then you look at, at like a corner and there you see the artist's signature, right? He or she signed it. Likely that's what's taking place here. That Mark is revealing and I saw this. But notice he also ran. They tried to catch him. He was fast. And he runs away in the equivalent of like boxer shorts. He runs away naked. All of this is pointing out that when Jesus is suffering and when he is betrayed, he is forsaken by all. He suffers alone. It's his love that drives him and continues to move him. But it's not that his disciples are cheering him on. He's at least got the support of his guys. He's got none of that. They all run. And yet it's very interesting. You know, earlier that night in John 16, Jesus speaking about what is to come, 
he made this statement, John 16, verse 32, and he says, and yet I am not alone because my Father is with me. You see, this is all written so that we'll see the depth of Christ's love for his own. We see it in the backdrop of the deception of his companion, Judas. We see it against the backdrop of the desertion by his Jesus' disciples. But we're about to see it in the backdrop of the rejection by Israel's leadership. Now, there is nothing more dramatic than to be on trial for your life. And perhaps the greatest and most momentous time in a trial is when the defendant is called to testify for himself. And that's what we see here. There has never been a trial like this, nor has there ever been a testimony given like the one that we're about to see. Now, when you see the trials of Jesus, you have to take all four gospel accounts to put them all together. We see that there were two phases to Jesus' trial. There was a religious trial that was conducted by Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. But there was also a secular trial done by the Romans, conducted by the governor, Pontius Pilate. And what we're going to see here, beginning in verse 53, is the start and what this religious trial looked like. It would get started, and both the secular and the religious trial had three phases, three parts. So there was a preliminary interrogation, there was a formal arraignment, and then there was a formal sentencing. And so picking it up in verse 53, we're going to find that they are going to haul Jesus away, and they're going to go to the palace of the high priest. Before they get to the high priest, they get to the, they first stop, make a stop at the home of Annas, who was the former high priest. Because you remember, even though the law said that a high priest was to have his ministry throughout his entire life, and when he died, then he'd be replaced, the Romans, when they took over Israel and all the Jews, are like, no, 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 no. That is way too much power for one guy. We're going to change him out when we want. And it worked about like, about like every four years. But when you get to a guy by Caiaphas, he must have been obviously very good at being accommodating to Rome because he held his high priesthood for 18 years. And so they start with that preliminary um, interrogation at Annas' place. Then they show up for the formal arraignment at Caiaphas. So Annas' son-in-law is Caiaphas. He's the high priest. He's the guy in charge, and they are going to run their trial. So take a look, verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, that's Caiaphas, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they gathered together. Now, if you were a Jewish reader, especially in the first century, you're like, wait a second here. All of this is illegal. This shouldn't happen. It was illegal on several counts, but let me highlight a few of them. First of all, criminal trials were not to be held at night. Second of all, criminal trials that were potentially had the death penalty involved were always to be done during the day and at the temple, in public, where witnesses could watch. Specifically, they were held at the chamber of the hewn stone. So it was supposed to be done during the day 
at the temple, at the chamber of hewn stone, where everyone could watch. And they also had a rabbinic tradition that they had established and followed, and that was that in the cases where the death penalty could be given, that they would, once the decision was made, they would fast for 24 hours, the ruling council. So you have 71, that includes the high priest, and then you have these 70 rulers. They would fast for one day. If they decided that, you know what, I don't think he actually is guilty, after we called him guilty, then he would be set free. But of course, you couldn't reverse. If they said he was not guilty, uh, you couldn't reverse it after that 24 hours. But they did this because they didn't want to have trials that would result in capital punishment on their feast days. Feast days like Passover. So they had built it in. And they always followed that rule. Except when it came to Jesus, this is totally illegal. And so they have this scene where they've gathered together. It's in the middle of the night. Everybody else is basically sleeping. But they're in the midst of running their trial. And notice verse 54. And there's Peter. He had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the official officers and warming himself at the fire. Here we see that Peter makes his way. We also find from John's gospel that so does the apostle John. They make their way into the home, to the palace of the high priest. And Peter is following at a distance and he's warming himself at a charcoal fire with the soldiers. And he's watching all of this take place. And so verse 55, now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. As much as they had pre-planned this and they had been looking for a significant period of time to put Jesus to death, they couldn't put it together to find an accusation that would lead to his death. And so they're, they're working at this. And in fact, they had apparently brought in various people, whether they paid them or they found people that were willing to testify Jesus, against Jesus. Look at verse 56. There was obviously a lot of them, for many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. And that was a problem, because in order for a testimony to stick, you had to have two, at least two, and it had to be absolutely consistent, or it was inadmissible. And so this isn't quite working the way they would want. And, and so they're trying to press. They can't even get their lies straight. And then finally, though, they've got it. Look at verse 57. Or, um, verse 57. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, Ah, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days, I will build another made without hands. And like, you know what? We got it. They remember something that Jesus said three years ago. At the very beginning of his ministry, you can find it recorded in John chapter 2. In John two nineteen, Jesus made this statement, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will build it back up. He was speaking of his body and telegraphing them, that I am going to be resurrected. Destroy my body, I will be raised up three days later. 
But they were so eager to twist Jesus' words. They weren't interested in the truth or what he meant. They were interested in an outcome that led to his death. And so they said, ah, we remember that he said he was going to destroy the temple. And I want you to know, if they could pull this off, if they could get two to actually agree, what did Jesus say? Tearing down a temple in the Roman Empire was a capital offense. You see, there were temples all throughout the Roman Empire, and they were treated as sacred, including the one that Herod had made in Jerusalem. To tear it down and somehow like rebuild it in three days, like they're like, this is kind of a claim that you're God or something like that. Why, that, that would be all that would be needed to turn you over to the Romans, and they'll kill us. They'll kill you for us. And that's exactly what they were hoping for. And so they throw this out there. And yet, look at verse 59. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. This is all unraveling. The high priest is watching this. How is it that we paid these people off? How how is it that we can't get these liars to actually just say the same thing? It's not working. It's unraveling. And so in desperation, look at verse 60. The high priest, Caiaphas, he stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? When the high priest was going to give a verdict, he would stand up. And it's as if that's what's needing to take place. You got chaos and confusion. We can't even get the testimony straight. And so in an act of desperation, he stands up as if he's going to give a verdict. And he screams it out, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But look at verse 61. But he kept silent and he did not answer. And again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? In the midst of their lies and the chaos of this scene, Jesus is absolutely silent. He's not going to dignify this kangaroo court with any sort of response whatsoever. What Jesus is doing is he's fulfilling the prophecies that were given regarding the Messiah. Remember Isaiah 53, verse 7? 700 years prior to this event, it was spoken of that when the Messiah comes, this is what will occur. It says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And finally, in one final act of desperation, the high priest puts it all on the line, and he questions him, verse 61, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the promised Messiah, all the hope of Israel, the eternal king? Are you that Son of David? And are you, and notice what he says, the Son of of the Blessed One. The Jews would never use God's name um, personally. They would never speak it. So they would use phrases like the Blessed One. And this was the only occurrence that we have when they use this. Are you the Son of God? Answer me. And Jesus does. He finally speaks, verse 62. 
And Jesus said, I am. Unequivocal. Absolute clarity. And he says, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And he tells them, I am. And then Jesus takes two messianic passages, Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that speak clearly of the Messiah, and he applies them to himself. In Psalm 110, verse 1, he is the one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father who is going to be the judge. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he is the one who is coming in the clouds of the heaven. He is the one who is going to receive a kingdom of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that he is the living son of God. And Jesus takes both of those, he ties them together, and he says, I am him. I am. I'm the one. And when he does this, he completely flips the tables. This is absolute role reversal. Can't you see it? Here is the high priest, Caiaphas. He's standing up. He's about ready to render his verdict. And Jesus says, I am him. I'm the judge. You think you're judging me? Let me tell you what's really happening. One day, you will see in the day of the resurrection that I am he and I am the one who is going to judge you. You know, so often as Christians, we focus that Jesus is our Savior, and I want you to know, indeed he is. But in order for him to be our Savior, it's because he is also the judge, and he dies in our place. And Jesus is saying, you will not accept me for who I am. You will face me as the judge. And he uses the strongest of titles of, of deity, and these passages, and he applies them to himself. There is absolutely no mistake as to what Jesus is claiming. He's claiming he's the Messiah and that he is God. And do the people understand what he is saying? Well, you don't have to wonder. Look how they respond. Look at verse 63. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? We don't need any more liars, any false testimony anymore. We've got him. What further need? And notice the high priest tears his clothes. In Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10, it's written that the high priest should never tear his clothes. They would tear their clothes for a sign of great grief or a symbol of righteous indignation. But they had in their Talmud, their civil and ceremonial laws that they collected, that the high priest, in an extreme case of blasphemy, he could tear his clothes. And that's what he does here. He is saying that this is blasphemy. In fact, he says, look at verse 64. You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Blasphemy, a defiant irreverence of God. And he said, all of you, the entire Sanhedrin, all 71 of us, we've heard the blasphemy from his mouth. He says he is the I am, the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the Blessed One. You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? What is your verdict? They got two choices. 
first choice is to recognize, indeed, he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and fall down on their faces in abject worship and beg for mercy. The other choice, you kill him as a blasphemer. Which one do they select? You see it right here. It says, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. There's no one that speaks in Jesus' defense. There is no evidence given. I mean, think of all the evidence that could be given that, you know, we might want to reconsider. Uh, He healed people. He cast out demons. He has brought people back from the dead, like Lazarus. But none of that was considered. They had made up their minds even before the trial had even started. You know, from the standpoint of the law, they think they had him. Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. He is taking the title of deity and applying it to himself. He's calling himself God. But they've got a problem. From the standpoint of a Roman law, blasphemy was not a crime that could be condemned to death. They've got to twist this to make Jesus as some sort of insurrectionist who is a threat to Rome a threat to as a military uprising. And so they make their condemnation. And notice, look at verse 65. And some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. The most egregious and hateful form of personal insult was to spit, according to the Jews, in someone's face. And what is taking place here when they blindfold him. Do you see that? They, they uh, actually blindfold him and they beat him with their fists and, they, fists and they're saying, prophesy. You see, in their Talmudic traditions, they had come to a false conclusion that the Messiah would be able to prophesy without seeing or hearing. How they phrase it is by smell alone. And they base this on Isaiah chapter 11, verses two through four. And, and verse three, it says, without eyes to see or without ears to hear. And so that what they're doing is they're blindfolding him so he cannot see who's about to hit him. And they go off and they haul him and, and they hit him. And then they say, prophesy, who is the one who just hit you if you're the Messiah? That's what's going on right here. And he is abused and he's beaten. But I want you to know that this was exactly what was promised and prophesied regarding Messiah. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 says this, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. This is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Remember Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34? Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Why did Jesus do this? And how did he endure? You know, this left a really strong impression on Peter, who is following at a distance. In fact, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes about this exact same event. And this is how he did it. Peter writes... For you've been called for this very purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, 
who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's how he did it. So why? Why did he do this? Well, he goes on to write, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you return to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Jesus did this because his love for the Father and for his own drove him to it. It's his love that walked him into this. Knowing the depth of Christ's love, you know what it does? It leads to growth in our lives. And we are to remember regularly the deep, deep love of Jesus. When we face our own sin, you remember that Jesus goes through all of this to not only demonstrate his love for us, but to die in our place. We remember Jesus' love when we are facing temptation. Think of Jesus. When you're hurting or suffering or when you are facing discouragement, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. He's standing strong. He's going to the cross. When you are happy and you're experiencing great joy and fulfillment, remember it is Jesus who made that possible. When you are fearful, remember that you are united with Jesus and his strength knows no limits. And when you are rejected, follow in his footsteps and trust him. And see, the depth of Christ's love is revealed by his devotion to our redemption. Let's pray. Lord.